Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So uh, I always love to have serial entrepreneurs, people that have been there and have done that multiple times. And I think that today we have someone that is really going to share with us a ton of lessons that were learned along the way. So without further ado, Mohi Daron, welcome on board today to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Glad to be here. So how was how was life for you growing up in India, Mohit? Well, life is all, I believe life is always about learning, right? Everywhere you are, it's a learning experience. So I spent uh, uh, about 22 years of my life growing up in India. It was a great learning experience. And I came to the U.S. when I was 22 years old, came to Houston. And uh, I guess I'm, I've been learning ever since too. Got it. Got it. And you came to the U.S. for studies. Is that right? That is correct. So I did my Ph.D. from Rice University uh, in Houston. Uh, Texas. And so I came there first in 1995, uh, spent five years there, and then uh, moved on to the Silicon Valley. And how, how big was the cultural shock for you? Because there's probably a lot of founders that are listening that are outside of the U.S. and thinking about coming to the U.S. So how, how big was that cultural shock for you? You know, I've uh, been through cu two cultural shocks. One was when I moved from India to the U.S., and I thought that was it. But when I moved from uh, Houston to uh, the Silicon Valley, that was a second cultural shock. So uh, moving from India to the U.S., I think it was obviously a, a big change. Uh, you know, everything was different. Uh, you know, everything was uh, upside down. You know, in India, we turned the light switches uh, downwards is on. In, in the U.S., it's <laughs> up is on. And so everything was kind of flipped and, and uh, uh, so many different cultures. And, it, uh, you, you, you know, it was just amazing. And then I thought that was it. Now I'm in the U.S., so how surprised can I be? And when I moved from Houston to the Silicon Valley, oh, my God, that was another culture shock because the way people think in the Silicon Valley, and it's very different. I mean, this place is just phenomenal. This place has a lot of entrepreneurs. They want to think different things. Uh, you know, Houston itself was great, but that was more the Texan lifestyle. You know, those guys are all about uh, making, you know, having fun and, enjoying life and they're not as entrepreneurial, but I had a great time at Rice University, learned a lot. Uh, like I said, life is all about learning. Yeah, absolutely. So so you actually started at Google in 2003. So 
This was actually one year before its IPO. So it was just about 600 employees. So how did you come across Google? Um, you know, the funny story is that uh, when I was finishing up my PhD uh, at Rice University, uh, I was approached by a, a, an early engineer at, uh, at Google who I had overlapped with in one of my summer internships. And he said, you're doing great stuff in your research. We would like to have you at Google. And at the time, I wasn't ready to graduate with my PhD. So I said, maybe after six months and uh, asked him to help with my research, and he did. But six months later, I didn't even have time to interview at Google. I mean, Google was one of 10 search engine companies. So he reached out to me again two years later. Hey, at least come have lunch at Google. And I did. And that's when he showed me all the cool stuff. I mean, it was Gmail under wraps, news.google.com under wraps, Google print under wraps, and a variety of other Google technologies. And I was sold. And you know who this guy was? This guy was Jeff Dean. He's the, uh, the fellow at Google. He's the brains behind Google Brain, uh, MapReduce, and a bunch of other technologies. So he's the guy who brought me into Google. Wow. Wow. Really cool. So what were you doing at Google? Um, I was, uh, for the most of my uh, stay at Google, I spent nearly five years there. I, I was working on the Google file system. So any data that the world stores eventually touches the Google file system. It was arguably the first web scale file system that was built in the world. Uh, it manages all of Google's data. So whether the data comes through Gmail or uh, you know, YouTube or any of the other Google properties, uh, it touches uh, some of that code somewhere. And that's what I was, as I was a part of a small team of about five to seven people who were in charge of uh, building that file system for Google. Right, right. And, and what were some of, um, you know, five years there is, is quite a bit of time, especially when when Google is, what a rocket ship. I mean, what, what kind of learnings did you get from, from those five years at Google? Um, you know, a lot of learning. Uh, uh, but a few that I can talk about is, uh, you know, A, I learned how to think big. And I learned how to think differently, right? Google operated at a scale that no other company at the time operated at. You know, they were, uh, you know, breaking all sorts of, computer science algorithms. Uh, you know, the traditional storage was not enough for them. They needed something web scale. So you keep on adding nodes, the, uh, the storage keeps on scaling and growing. Uh, you know, they wanted uh, in such a large cluster, if something fails, they wanted to assume that failures are the norm, right? So think differently and think big. That's what I learned there. And of course, working with a lot of smart people, it was just an amazing experience, amazing learning. Wow. And, and you obviously were one of the early employees there. I mean, early. I mean, even though it was 600, still people were getting compensated with, with stock options. What was the strike price of your stock options? Oh, man. Uh, you know, I got to tell you a story there. Uh, I, I accepted the offer in Google around October 2002, but then went to India to get engaged uh, and spent about two to three months there and came back engaged. And... Uh, during that time, the strike price grew by a factor of four. Um, so I could have gotten the stock at, I think, 50 cents a piece, but I ended up getting at $2 a piece. And I wow. told my wife that was a very expensive engagement. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. I mean, look, compared to, to where the stock is today, which is about 1200 I mean, unbelievable ride. But I think that the, for you in your case, I, I think I heard somewhere that you sold earlier because you didn't want to sleep, um, to lose sleep over it. Is that right? 
Yeah, so I, look, uh, you know, money is money, but I believe that the quality of life is very important. And there was a time when uh, in 2008 crash, I think everything was falling down and I knew Google was strong, but, uh, but I, you know, this was my first company and like there is plenty of life left to make money. I don't want to bet all my, uh, keep all my eggs in one basket. And so at that time, I thought I should just sell and not lose sleep over the crashing stock market. And I think at the time it was the right decision. Uh, and of course, in hindsight, you know, you, you, you regret it, oh, I should have held the stock, but I think uh, sleep uh, is more important to me, and I give that advice to uh, any other entrepreneurs who are listening, that sleep well, it's the more important thing for you, because you can, there's plenty of life left to do great things, right? There's plenty of life left to make money. Uh, don't lose sleep over money, uh, and, and that's the advice that I followed for myself. I love it. I love it. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people that are talking about that and, you know, so just sleep, sleep, uh, you know, there's, there's people that are talking about the, um, I think it was Alexis Ohanian that was talking about now that the hustle porn he was saying, which is basically that the being two weeks, like nonstop with the ramen noodles and everything that you just need to take care of yourself. And if you don't do that, then you're, you know, just close the lights and, and go and do something else because if you just have one body, one way to live, right? Yeah, and and you know the the great thing about technology is that it grows so fast, uh, and if you want to keep up with it, you got to also take care of your body. Uh, you know, you got to give the body the basics that it needs. It needs sleep. It needs good food. You know, it needs exercise. So, to all the entrepreneurs who are you know have dreams of uh, you know doing great companies, I would say it starts uh, with yourself first. Take care of yourself because then your body would uh, return, uh, you know, the goodness that you need to build great companies. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Mohit, in, in your case, at what point do you decide it's time to move on from Google and, and really become an entrepreneur? Yeah, so in my mind, life is all about learning. And uh, life is also, in my mind, a little bit about keeping yourself uncomfortable. Uh, whenever I get too comfortable, I know that I, in order to grow, I need to move to a different situation so that I can become uncomfortable again. And at Google, I just became too comfortable. I mean, uh, you know, everything was taken care of, lunch, meals, uh, you know, uh, it was just way too comfortable. And I knew to grow further, I should now look into a different environment. So I literally, you know, uh, went off from Google and joined a young startup to learn the ropes of doing a startup. It was a data warehousing company called Asti Data Systems. And, and I, I kid you not, my wife and uh, my parents thought I was out of my mind, leaving a great place like Google and going to a no-name startup. Uh, but they had faith in my decision, and, and I was there for two years. I literally learned, learned the ropes of how to do companies because I was literally scratching from the start. I mean, starting from square one, I'm sorry. Uh, and, and that taught me, you know, basically how to do companies, how to think from, uh, you, you know, from, from uh, afresh. And, and once I spent two years there, I thought I was ready to do my first company, which is when I did Nutanix, which was my first company. And then a few years later, I did uh, Cohesity, which is my, my second company. So, so let's talk about Nutanix. So how did you meet your co-founders? Um, you know, one of uh, my co-founders was actually, he and I were engineers together in my very first company, the company I joined before I started at Google. It was a company called Zambil. Now, nobody probably knows that name because that company doesn't exist. Uh, but we were both engineers there, young engineers, and that's how we knew each other. And uh, 
we coincidentally uh, ended up again in a in the same company after i left google uh, the company i mentioned as data systems so so he was the vp of engineering i was the the main architect and uh, and and that was uh, one of my co-founders the other co-founders was another employee of Asta Data Systems, who knew uh, my first co-founder from the past. And so, so in essence, I met both of my co-founders in Aster Data Systems, and we together decided to do, uh, you know, Nutanix. Got it, got it. So what was the, um, what was the kind of like the process of, of, of this idea coming to life? Uh, do you mean the Nutanix idea? Correct, we... Nutanix. So, yeah, so I think for a while, uh, you know, we, kept talking maybe once a week, uh, but we realized it's not working out because, uh, you know, this doing companies is not easy. Coming up with a differentiated idea is not easy. So I, we all decided that we need to quit our jobs and literally take a, a small place, rent a small place, and then think. So, so that process uh, lasted about two to three months. And uh, in that process, literally, I made it a office-going-like atmosphere. I would leave home around 9 a.m. and Come back around 7 p.m. and and from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. All we are doing there, sitting there, is is brainstorming and studying the markets and stuff. And and as part of that, we uh, you know uh, found that there was a gap uh, you know in a particular part of the industry. And we thought that we could uh, provide a solution that is uh, a, a great uh, solution for that gap. And that's how my company Nutanix was born. Got it. And obviously, of, of this company, you were the CTO, the chief technology officer. So how did you guys decide to divide the roles? Yeah, I, I think I was the technical guy, so it was natural for me to be the CTO. And uh, the first uh, uh, co-founder I mentioned, his name is Dheeraj. He was the VP of engineering at uh, uh, the, the, the company we came from, uh, Asset Data Systems. And so naturally, uh, you know, he kind of took on the CEO role. And the third co-founder, uh, he was uh, the product guy at that company, and so he became the chief people of, uh, sorry, the chief product officer. And so it was kind of a natural extension to what we were already doing. Um, you know, I was a technologist, so I became the CTO. Got it. And what what ended up being the business model behind Nutanix? Uh, the business model was, I, I think, the easiest way to describe that is uh, in the last, you know, ten years. Nutanix was formed in two thousand nine. In the decade before that. Uh, CPU and disk uh, speeds and capacities had increased tremendously. But uh, what connects the two, you know, networking had not increased appreciably. So our whole idea was to collapse all three of them together into one platform. We call we call that hyperconvergence. Uh, remove three tiers of uh, hardware and put it all on one platform. And, and then start running production applications on that. And that was, in essence, what Nutanix was all about. Actually, the the genesis of the story, not many people know this, actually comes from an intuition that I got at Google itself. So uh, the story is that, you know, I, I told you I was working on the Google file system, and it was a web-scale file system. So Google uh, built this beautiful file system, but uh, it tried to use it like traditional storage. So it would put compute on one side of the network, the Google file system on the other side, uh, connect that using some expensive networking, and boom, you have you know Google doing its stuff. And uh, Google very soon realized that it was spending most of its money and time trying to improve the network. And that's when they came up with the idea that why don't we collapse all three together? So they made a fancy scheduler called Borg, where they kind of uh, put all of their compute and the Google file system processes on the same node and manage it all using that fancy scheduler. 
So that's what gave me the idea that, hey, that solution applied to Google. It's probably not a solution that's applicable to the world out there. How can we bring it to the world? Because in the real world, compute and storage don't trust each other. And yeah. the way we made that possible was through virtualization. So we basically made a logical boundary between compute and storage and brought it together on one platform uh, through virtualization. So I know that's a lot of geeky stuff, but that's in essence is the story behind Nutanix. Got it. And I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of uh, geeky people as well listening to this. So uh, I'm sure <laughs> they appreciated that. So thank you, Mohit. So, so let me ask you this. So with Nutanix, you were literally taking the food off the table from giants such as Cisco, Hewlett Packard, which also uh, bought one of your uh, rivals. So what were some of the uh, early days like uh, with Nutanix? Oh, the early days, uh, you know, A, we were doing a company for the first time. Uh, so we didn't know much about doing companies. Uh, the one thing I knew was that we got to be frugal. I mean, we didn't have money, right? Uh, and so in a, in a basically a few engineers, three or four engineers, uh, we wrote practically the whole of the Nutanix code that we eventually uh, went GA with. GA means general announcement. And so over a period of uh, about one and a half years, we were all heads down coding. And uh, I also remember that uh, anyone was willing to do anything else in the company. So one of my co-founders was willing to become the finance guy and taking care of all the bills and stuff. The other guy used to take care of rent and stuff. So we were literally, whatever was needed, we used to roll up our sleeves and do that. And the first few years were all head down and just uh, coding, 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 and testing, testing, testing. And, and once the product was built, um, slowly it dawned on us that we actually built something phenomenal because the uptake was pretty impressive. Uh, and I think the history just, you know, speaks for itself after that. Uh, you know, Nutanix took off and became a public company and, and so on and so forth. And talking about building something exceptional and, and talking about taking off, was there, a, was there a point for you where you were like, we are into something here? Yeah, when, when uh, you start seeing the adoption, you know, even though your product is, uh, is sort of a little bit unpolished, but... Uh, People are standing up there and saying, this is the philosophy I subscribe to. We are not going to buy that other mature product uh, because we don't believe in that philosophy anymore. We don't believe in the philosophy that compute, storage, and networking all need to be separate. Three different things bought from three different vendors. We believe in the Nutanix philosophy, and we believe this company can actually surpass whatever uh, kinks they have in their product. That's when you know that you are onto something big, that people are willing to forego those big names and those polished names and, and are willing to come to you, uh, even though you have no name uh, and they believe in your technology and your vision, that's when you know something big is gonna happen here. That's it, product market fit. So, so an operation like this obviously requires quite a bit of capital to scale. So how much did you guys raise in total for the business before the IPO? Um, you know, to, Actually, you know, I don't have the number off the top of my head. I think the Series A was about $10 million. Series B was about uh, 20 or so. Series C was 25. Series D was 100. So all in all, I think we may have, may have raised north of $200 million uh, in four or five rounds before the company went IPO. Now, I started uh, Quihizity well before it went IPO uh, yeah. because I felt there was a uh, another big problem waiting for me to solve. And being a technologist... And we'll talk about that. Yes. We'll absolutely. talk about that, Mohit. Don't 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 get ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> okay, so right. so so obviously here you had um, on the business you had people like Kosla, Lightspeed, Battery. Who do you recall like who opened the doors to meet these guys? 
Um, so what happened was that uh, we first raised money from a small firm called Blumberg Capital, off in San Francisco. Yeah. And uh, and the guy who um, you know seated us from there then moved to Lightspeed, and uh, he uh, then uh, convinced Lightspeed that this is a great team and a great technology to look at. And so Lightspeed came knocking, and they liked us so much that they didn't even give us a chance to take uh, our pitch to other VCs. They just funded us with our Series A financing. And then uh, beyond that, we. Uh, uh, took on an independent board member. His name is Mark Leslie. He was the CEO of Veritas in earlier days. Great guy. And he's the guy who really introduced us to Coastal Ventures uh, because he had good relations with them. And that's how we came in touch with them at Series B time. And we eventually raised Series B from Coastal Ventures. Got it, got it. And obviously that, that guy that went from one VC to another and got two VCs to invest in your business. I hope that you guys invited him for dinner. Him <laughs> yeah, he, we put him on our board and, uh, you know, <laughs> for a long time. Amazing. So, so Nutanix actually became kind of like the, um, the poster child for tech unicorns, not like the companies that reached the billion dollar valuation. So you left right before the IPO. I mean, we're talking about a company that, that went, you know, like even to the, to the $4 billion valuation or even more, but why did you decide to leave the business when, they, so I, when the company was taking off? Yeah, I'm a technologist. And, uh, you know, let's uh, draw an analogy to uh, 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 an iceberg. Uh, I'm going to compare an iceberg to a data center. In the data center, uh, we have production stuff. We call that primary storage. That's what Nutanix does. But while I was in Nutanix, I realized that there is a, even a bigger problem in the lower part of the iceberg, which we roughly call secondary storage. It's everything that's non-mission critical, everything that's non-SLA driven, like backups and test and development and analytics and so on and so forth. So I realized that uh, only 20% of the data sits in primary storage, which is what Nutanix was addressing, but 80% sits in secondary. And there's a big mess in the secondary part. We call that mass data fragmentation. Every part of data is all over the place. It's in a different silo, it's in a different appliance. Even in the cloud, it's in a different uh, different S3 bucket or what have you. So I thought that rather than kind of sitting in Nutanix and milking uh, the cow, so to speak, uh, because at that time the technology was mature and it was just a matter of uh, pushing the go-to market, being a technologist, let me go and go out there and start one more company. Remember that uh, phrase about being uncomfortable again? Yeah. And so I came and uh, came out of Nutanix, started Cohesity, and, and that was all about secondary storage. And I didn't realize the magnitude of the problem I had I'd taken on. It's a Got very it. big market, very big problem. It doesn't deal with just one silo like backups. It deals with uh, multiple of them. And, and, and so the innovation required here is phenomenal. And that's what we've been working on for the last uh, five and a half years. So what was what was the process like? Because I mean, this is this is a really big deal. So it's literally like leaving your your baby, right? Your your company. And and what was the process like of 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 Coesity, like coming to life, you incubating this concept, and then one day saying it's time for me to to leave. Yeah. So the process, um, you know, obviously it's always hard leaving your baby. Uh, but uh, you know, I had the same problem at Google. Uh, it was incredibly hard to leave Google, given the nice place it was. But I guess once I decide on something, then uh, the decision is made. And uh, it was fun to start all over again. It was There's a bunch of people working with me, uh, trying to explore the nooks and corners of what we were trying to set out to do. 
and uh, we sat in an office for about five to six months and we really refined what we wanted to do. I actually am a big fan of not, uh, you know, and this is an advice for entrepreneurs. Don't just start with what you think is the right thing to do. Just take a step back, uh, divide up the market into multiple pieces uh, and study what others have done in various segments of the market. So I divided up the market into virtualization, security, mobile space, and so on and so forth. And I studied all the companies that were done and that gave me ideas uh, on what the gaps might be. And eventually I thought that the right thing to do is to focus on that secondary part, but it gave me ideas from other spaces. I gave me ideas from what people were doing in security space. Uh, it gave me what are the trends. And so now I was a much more informed person along with the rest of my team. And when I started this company, I kind of knew the lay of the land. I knew what people wanted, right? And, and so the product was really architected with all that in mind. Uh, and that's the reason for all the success we've had in the last uh, you know, five and a half years. And, and we're gonna talk about that. And, and I know that tech companies keep everything you know, that is related to like their IP, like very tight to the vest, especially being a, a co-founder and CTO, the one that is leaving. So, so I guess from your experience and then also for the people that are listening, like how can you like prepare or avoid any IP issues if you decide to, to, to do this approach that you took? Yeah, what I like to do is, um, you know, look, uh, in the beginning, you don't have a company. Uh, and so you're working with a bunch of people trying to brainstorm ideas. The risk always is uh, that you brainstorm an idea, someone doesn't join you, uh, you do a successful company on that. But later that person comes and says, well, I can own this idea, right? So that's the kind of IP risk that people run. And to get around that risk, uh, I, uh, you know, was, uh, I, 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 with the help of an attorney, I prepared some paperwork. And that paperwork essentially said that whatever idea were, was discussed under the roof that I had rented, they cannot belong to me. Now, if we, let's say, come up with three ideas and I do a company on one of them and uh, some guy doesn't choose to join me, but they choose to do a company on the second idea, it is on my honor to not go and pursue that person and claim that that was my idea, right? And they have to believe that. If they don't believe that, then don't work with me. Don't brainstorm with me. So, but the ideas, uh, that's how I protect myself and uh, this company that we had that, uh, uh, that cadence going on, that everyone who was brainstorming with me under one roof had signed something that said that any ideas generated here would belong to me in some sense. Got it, got it, got it. And, and obviously for Coesity, you were, you were a solo founder. So this was a different experience for you, like being used to being with other people that you could rely on the good days and the bad days. What has been the difference between having co-founders to being a solo founder? You know, a, a co-founder is a very intense relationship. I sometimes say it's uh, uh, even more than your your marriage uh, because you spend uh, you spend eight to ten hours with your family at home, but you spend more hours with your co-founders. Um, the intensity is pretty high. So, uh, but the nice thing is that uh, you know you can rely on your co-founders for a number of things. So for instance, in Nutanix, I was the technical guy and I let my other co-founders take care of the business aspects and stuff. So being the only co-founder, uh, sorry, the only founder, uh, you know, comes with its upsides and downsides. On one hand, uh, there is no one to have such an intense relationship with. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, you everything is, the buck stops with you. you any problem in the company eventually comes to you if uh, your, your subordinates can't, uh, solve that problem. So so it's a big, big responsibility. Uh, my advice to entrepreneurs out there is not to try this uh, in their first company. 
I think I would recommend two to three co-founders to begin with. But once they know, uh, they get the hang of things and they know that, you know, they at least have a good idea of what it takes to build a company, then in their second or third attempt, they can attempt to go solo if they so, so desire, but not in Got the it. first one. Got it. Makes sense. And, and, and you being an engineer, a trained engineer, Mohit, what was the experience for you from going from the engineering side to, to the business side? Oh, man, I, I think uh, it was, there was a lot of learning that was required. And, uh, you know, I, I must humbly state that there was some delusion. You know, you do a successful company like Nutanix, you also become delusional that, oh, you know how to do startups, right? But the reality is that you don't. Uh, every company, the situation is different. And I was in a different situation. I was the only founder and I had to do both business and, uh, and technology. So let me give you some examples of failings that I had uh, in the initial uh, uh, years of the company. So, you know, let's say I want to hire technical people. It's very easy to hire technical people. I know how to hire technical people. Ask them some puzzles on the board, on the whiteboard, and they'll give answers. And you can, okay, this guy seems like a great guy. Let's hire him. Uh, but you can't quite do that for business guys. So, And I mistakenly thought I could just do uh, replicate the exact same process, just ask them some questions. And if I'm happy with the answers, then boom, you know, there's a guy I can hire. But these are not programming puzzles. Um, these could be the, the person could have heard that stuff or seen that stuff elsewhere, and he's just regurgitating. How do you really know that he or she knows that stuff? So I, you know, refined my algorithm for, uh, for hiring business people, uh, sort of the hard way. You know, I made a lot of hiring mistakes. And uh, if you want, we can elaborate that. But, but that's, that was just one of the failings, you know, me thinking that I actually know how to hire people, and I didn't. And I had to learn it the hard way all over again. And there were enough other learnings that I had to, uh, you know, managing VCs and managing the board and hiring great board members and that sort of stuff. There's plenty of learnings. And, and then learning go to market and, uh, you know, lots and lots of great learnings. And I'm, I'm kind of just amazed at how much I didn't know, even when I thought I knew a lot. Right. Well, you don't know what you don't know, right? It's exactly. As the, as the saying goes. So what ended up being the business model for Questity? by simplifying just backups. So I'm a big fan of doing companies with a very uh, well-defined entry point in the market, which solves some key pain points. But then the company ought to have a bigger vision that you can expand to beyond the entry point. So the entry point for us was just simplifying backups. So the pain that was there was people had to go to three or four different vendors to put together a backup platform. One vendor to buy backup software from, another to buy storage from, and so on and so forth. Once we do that, once we simplify backups, now we go to the rest of the vision, which is basically solving this mass data fragmentation problem in the secondary storage world. Uh, beyond backups, test and development is bought from a different vendor. Analytics from a different one. File services and object storage from a different one. Cloud is one more uh, vendor to go with. So the, the essence behind Cohesity was to build one platform on which you can consolidate all of that. I sometimes liken that to a smartphone, right? A smartphone had to be a great phone to begin with. Even in the phone, it brought lots of innovations. But beyond the phone, it can also be a music player and a camera and a flashlight and so on and so forth. On one platform, you've consolidated multiple things. And that's, in essence, what Cohesity does for the data center and the cloud. Got it, got it. And, and for Cohesity, how, how much capital did you guys have you guys raised? Um, so far, we have raised $410 million in total across uh, four rounds of funding, A, B, C, and D. Our, our last round of funding was raised the one year back. Uh, lead investor was SoftBank. Uh, so very 
very uh, glad to have very, very strong investors, names like SoftBank and Sequoia and Google Ventures, even Cisco and HP have put money in us. Morgan Stanley has put money in us. Excel has put money in us. Uh, Trinity Ventures and a lot of, lots of great uh, venture capitalists have put money in us. But the lead investors are SoftBank and Sequoia. And and did you find that those were like relationships from from your time at the perhaps Nutanix and or how how did you how did you meet these guys? Yeah. So. Uh, uh, Sequoia, the funny story is that uh, 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 my board member from Sequoia used to be my SVP of engineering at Google. Uh, he's a very accomplished figure. His name is Bill Coren. He uh, used to also be the director of Bell Labs. It's a research uh, establishment before he came to Google. So he left Google to go to Sequoia. And I guess, uh, you know, with Nutanix, we'd built a little bit of reputation. So as soon as I was uh, trying to do Kuhizri, he approached me. And I went and met Sequoia, and just a great team. And uh, and and Sequoia is well known to be the best early stage VC out there in the world. So as soon as I was ready, literally in two days, uh, Sequoia wrote me a check, and we raised fifteen million dollars in our Series A round of financing. So that's how uh, I uh, came to kind of be in a formal relationship with Sequoia. And then in our Series D round, which just happened last year, uh, I uh, you know met Deep Nishar, who used to be an advisor to Kuhizri earlier. He was also an advisor at my last company, Nutanix. So he's known me for a while. Uh, in fact, we overlapped at Google, even though we didn't know each other back then. So uh, early on in Kuhizri, uh, I signed him on as an advisor, and uh, we used to take uh, walks and stuff. And then he joined SoftBank, and and we uh, parted ways as an advisor because he was busy and I was busy. But when we were about to raise Series D, he's like, I already know this company. This is a great company. I think SoftBank ought, ought to invest in this company. So this became the second enterprise software company that SoftBank invested in. The first one was Slack. Um, so that's how I came to know those guys. And then, uh, you know, I met the founder of SoftBank. Uh, he's uh, very picky about the companies he invests in. He personally wants to meet the, the people that he's invested in. And so he happened to be here in California, coincidentally, for about half an hour uh, to meet me. And, uh, well, he was here for six hours, but he met me for half an hour and within those six hours. And uh, I guess he approved, and uh, that's how we ended up uh, in a in a in a formal relationship with with SoftBank. That's amazing. And you seem to be like an expert at identifying people that are going to be moving into other places. <laughs> <laughs> it's no, amazing. I, I value relationships, uh, you know, and uh, I value people's expertise. I mean, when you uh, when you get around with elite people, you know that they're going to do great in life. They're going to wherever they are, they're going to do great stuff. And so, knowing great people and inculcating relationships with them. And this is actually uh, a strong advice for the uh, you know, would-be founders and entrepreneurs out there. Hey, build your relationships because you don't know when those relationships would come useful, right? Because if you build relationships and you move around with elite people, those elite people will help you in the future. You just don't know how today, right? Yeah. And so look at my uh, Deep uh, Nishar, who... Uh, uh, connected me to SoftBank and funded us there and look at Bill Coren, who was my SVP of uh, engineering at Google and now uh, my board member from Sequoia. Uh, and, you know, these kind of people, uh, you just build a relationship and eventually down the line, somewhere down the line, they will be really, really helpful. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And and I guess some people might be wondering, I mean, at, at this point with Coercity, you already have achieved financial freedom. I mean, enough for for generations to be able to live well, right? So 
why did you raise capital and, and, and at what point did you think it was a good idea to open it up to outside investors rather than just financing it yourself? So uh, I had actually uh, achieved financial freedom in Google itself. So for me, uh, doing companies is not about making money. Uh, it's more about pushing my passion. That's why I do companies, right? And I think the best way to describe how a company is built is to maybe liken it to, um, let's say, a hotel. When, when I want to build a hotel, um, you know, you don't get, if let's say I'm not rich uh, and I can't put in all the money for a hotel because, hey, I'm building a, a big hotel and I don't have that much money. Um, so what you do is you go raise outside financing. But, but let's say you need, I don't know, $500 million to build the hotel. You're not going to get all that in day one. Uh, you maybe you will get like $20 million. And, and then you go and build part of the hotel. And so you show progress. And that gives confidence to the VCs out there that given that you seem to know what you're doing, they will fund you more. And then you fund more. And then maybe part of the hotel is made and you even made it, make it operational, start making some money. And they're like, okay, maybe we can actually uh, put more on top, maybe build more floors, right? So they'll give you more money. And this is how it's built. And one of the big advantages of actually taking money from external people is because when you put your own money, uh, you kind of maybe become a little bit uh, lax or, uh, or easygoing. Hey, this is your money, right? But if it belongs to someone else, there is a sense of responsibility that you owe that person. That person took a bet on you. You can't let them down. And so that is a strong motivator. And that's another reason why we raise money. So it's not just because uh, sometimes these ventures require a lot of money. Uh, but also because uh, having an external uh, investor uh, keeps you, A, honest and motivated, and B, they bring a lot of value. Look at Sequoia. Uh, you know, they brought me huge names. Uh, one of my independent board members is Dan Womanhoen. He was brought to us by Sequoia. He was the CEO of NetApp. Great guy. I view him as my, my mentor. So I, I get to build more relationships. I get to know more great people through these relationships, right? If I had only put my money in it, A, I wouldn't have enough, B, you know, I won't build all these relationships. And I've, uh, the company is not all about just holding money by yourself. It's all about sharing and, and bringing in people and forming partnerships and forming an ecosystem that the company lives in. And that's what's so great about doing companies. Got it. Got it. No, it makes sense. It makes sense. So, so how many employees do you have now at Coecity? So the funny thing is that uh, two weeks back, we crossed the 1,000 mark. So, wow. uh, and today, we had a company all hands, and we celebrated that. Uh, so we have more than 1,000 employees now formally at Cohesity. So it's a great step for us. That's amazing. Congratulations. And I've heard you talk a lot about hiring leaders. So how do you hire leaders? Um, so this goes, goes back to what I said. Uh, I learned it uh, the hard way on how to hire leaders, uh, right? So the first thing you start with uh, is you build, in my mind, you can call it comp uh, you know, a checklist or comp competency-based interviewing. Uh, you form a list of things that you're looking for because different leaders bring different things at different stages of the company. You need to understand what your company needs at the stage that you're in, right? So you build a list of things that, uh, that you are looking for in a leader. And you divide that list into three parts. One is uh, the part that is applicable just by matching it to the resume of the person. Uh, maybe you want the person coming from a startup. Maybe you want a person who's uh, done zero to two hundred billion dollars in revenue before, or something like that. Right? Whatever, whatever the list is, uh, and then you have a filtered list of candidates that sort of uh, uh, you know uh, meet your checklist or a pre-interview checklist. Then you go through an interview, and you're looking for specific things, uh, and you're asking specific questions, 
And one thing, of course, you look for an interview is that this leader is uh, a great people person, has a great uh, culture fit. Um, and once the person meets uh, at least 80% of the checklist you have formed for the interview, then comes the post-interview checklist, which is all about, in my mind, blind references and not blind references from just uh, you know any any person. It's uh, uh, references from either people who reported to that leader or people who've been peers of that leader, because those, those are the guys who will tell you the truth. They will tell you any red flags. Uh, and so between this, uh, uh, you know, I'm fairly certain between this process that I will uh, land up with a, a great uh, great leader uh, who's a great fit for the, the what, what the company needs at this stage. Got it. And, and I guess, you know, whether it is uh, hiring or fundraising or, or doing any strategic decision that is going to determine the future of the company. There is um, many instances where you need to listen to your gut feeling. And I've, and I've heard you talk about gut feeling. So what advice would you give to folks that are listening about, about this? Yeah, um, the advice I will give to people is that, um, you know, when you hire a wrong person, especially when that person is a wrong leader, that sets the company back uh, at least six months, if not more. Uh, the damage that's done is immense. So, uh, you know, the body has a way to tell you if something bad is about to happen. Uh, and I would strongly recommend to people to listen to their gut. If everything else is pointing in one way, but your gut is saying that, no, something, I would say listen to your gut, because if things go wrong, you would, uh, you, you know, you would regret it and you'd have to clean up, uh, you know, uh, for, for a long period of time. So rather than go through that mess, I mean, just what's the big deal? You know, don't hire that leader and uh, go with your gut and, and look for the next guy. Conversely, sometimes uh, the gut says that this is a great guy. And, uh, you, you know, that's where as long as he's sort of met the checklists that, uh, that I've put together and it's not a huge red flag there, then I would go with my gut. And I've been rewarded by taking bets on people. I mean, I've had people who were just, um, you know, they were kind of borderline from my checklist, but uh, my gut said that this is going to be a great employee. Look at the enthusiasm. Look at uh, the person's willingness to learn. I think if I just take a bet on this guy, I think I can mentor him and they will become incredibly valuable to the company. And I've taken those bets and they have been very, very rewarding, uh, even to me personally, because you see such a person grow and uh, take the company forward. So, so I think I'm just saying that uh, pay attention to your gut. I think uh, body has a natural ability to warn you uh, against red flags and also tell you if uh, something might be very promising. Um, so entrepreneurs should definitely take, you know, it's all, hey, startups are all about risks. Uh, and how do you manage those risks? One way to manage the risk is through your gut. Your gut tells you which way to go. Right, right. And, and, and for you as well, Mohit, life is, is not about accumulating. It's about giving. Could you expand on this? Yeah, eventually, uh, you know, uh, like I said, I no longer do companies for money. Uh, I do it for my passion. But along the way, it's also very gratifying to to give some back. I always say knowledge is free. Knowledge is, should not be for uh, for for sale. And so I, you know, freely distribute. Anyone who comes to me for advice on on uh, how to do companies, you know, that's all free knowledge. Uh, all the things that I've learned the hard way. Uh, you know, people call me. Uh, distributed system expert, and I'm. I just enjoy giving lectures on distributed systems and tell people all the 
intricate details that I've learned over my 20 years uh, between companies like Google, Nutanix, and and Cohesity. Not that I'm going to reveal any trade secrets there, but uh, but the concepts, I'm more than willing to share those. So that's one part of giving. The other part of giving is just, uh, you know, financially, I've given to uh, charitable organizations. I have uh, uh, a structure set up that when uh, me and my wife pass away, a, a bulk of our wealth is actually actually going to go into charity. Um, as a company, we give to a foundation here in San Jose that uh, takes care of uh, uh, providing jobs to young people. Uh, I think it's called the Work to Future Foundation. Um, so we believe in giving in a number of ways. Uh, I've given to my uh, my alma maters, uh, you know, Rice University, where I did my PhD from, and and my uh, engineering institute, ID Delhi, where I did my bachelor's from. So I've given to all of them. So life is about giving, and I think giving, uh, you know, brings you pleasure. Uh, accumulation, I think, un un unlike what people believe, Sometimes accumulation isn't always very pleasing, but giving can be very fulfilling. I love it. I love it. So one question that I always ask guests that participate on the on the show, Mohit, is if, if you could go back to the past and give yourself one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? Um, that's a hard to pick from, but I would say um, the first advice I would give to me myself is uh, to listen to my gut. Because whenever I've not listened to my gut, uh, I've uh, regretted that. The second thing, if I may pick, is uh, you know the the importance of hiring leaders and the right leaders. I already gave you my algorithm for hiring leaders, but to begin with, you need to uh, put together a pipeline. I was very stingy, uh, frugal when I I did not put money on recruiters. Uh, and right now, I would tell any entrepreneur out there. You will do yourself a favor if you're raising significant amount of money from VCs, probably more than a million bucks. Spend just three hundred thousand dollars of that money on a great executive recruiter out there. Um, you know, approximately it takes about hundred thousand dollars per exec. Bring three great execs into your company. These executive recruiters will build a great pipeline for you, for you to pick from, and then you can apply the algorithm I gave to you and pick a great leader because these great execs, these great leaders will be immensely useful in building the company. You hire bad leaders up front, it's going to set back the company a couple of years. So that's the advice I would give and I also apply to myself if I ever do another company. The first thing I'm going to do is take my first $300,000 and get three great leaders. That's fantastic. And by the way, you are actually the first one that shares this, uh, this type of advice of getting this type of executive. So so thank you for, for sharing that. So what is the best way, Mohit, for the folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? Um, well, they can just drop me and, uh, you know, contact me on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, they can search for my name, Mohit Aaron, uh, on LinkedIn. And I'm more than happy to connect with them and respond there. Uh, they can also, if they want, write me an email. Uh, my, my first or my last name, uh, Mohit or Aaron at Kuhizli.com would work. Uh, so anyway, they like to like to contact me. I'm welcome to uh, you know answer their questions. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today, Mohit. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Alejandro. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening, and see you at the next episode.